My name is Ian Koss. This is Forever is a Long Time. Part 5, My Aunt Rory. I think in a way I'm coming to you last because in my mind at least, um, you relate with this topic a little differently than most of my family because you haven't structured your life around a romantic partner in the same way that most other members of my family have. Um, Like you have a very Mm -hmm. strong and internal sense of yourself that guides, that guides you, at least from my perspective. And I was, I was curious if that, um, if that feels accurate to you, if that's how you see yourself. I do, you know, because I have been, um, I mean, since I got divorced, I really only had one long-term relationship and that ended, you know, decades ago at this point. And um, to add to that or to help, I think, help create that is that I lived away from family for a really long time. Yeah. And I was on my own a lot for holidays and birthdays. And, you know, you either throw yourself into relationships to not be alone or you find a way to embrace that as that being alone doesn't have to mean lonely. Being alone doesn't have to mean that there's anything wrong. It's just what you are doing. And to me, I'm pretty good company. I'm funny and I'm, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, I, I just feel like that's a nice thing to feel about yourself. When I was growing up, we didn't see Rory nearly as much as my mother's other siblings. But she had a deal where whenever one of us kids turned 16, she would fly us out to California, where she was at the time, and we'd do all the silly tourist stuff that one does in California. Like go to the Jelly Belly factory and drive down that really curvy street in San Francisco. I have this distinct memory of going to a piano bar together, the kind where all the waiters take turns singing. And either it was my birthday, or Rory lied and told them it was my birthday, but somehow she got the whole place to sing for me. And that's Rory. She has no qualms about getting exactly what she wants. She'll order a steak off the menu, then ask to swap out the sides, hold the sauce, and bring extra butter for the bread even before she's seen how much butter they were going to bring, because she knows we'll need it. She lives her life so completely on her own terms. It's almost hard for me to imagine that she was once married to another person. That said, of course, you were married at some point. Um, I, guess I was pretty early in, in life. This is the crazy part: is that I I don't even know the name of your once husband. This is you know so totally removed from my life. Um, yeah, his name is, uh, was Joe okay. Branch, and let me see if I can put this timing together. I graduated from nursing school in '85. So I'd say we're probably married uh, early 80s and divorced, and we were only married for seven years. Oh, so right around the time I was born, you guys split up. Yeah, I think so. And this was all while I was in Florida. Yeah. I was a waitress at a restaurant, and he was one of the managers there. 
And um, I don't know. It was just easy. Falling into a relationship was so easy. I mean, like within a matter of days, we were practically living together. Um, and uh, he was funny. And it's kind of hard to actually, it's kind of hard to voice all this stuff because I ended up so disliking so many things about him by the time we were done. And I'm sure part of it is that, you know, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to sort of segue a little bit, but I was involved in this thing called Divine Light Mission. And it was a cult that was headed by this young uh, guru called Guru Maharaji. Guru Maharaji says, life is like a chess game. And very soon now, the whole world will be checkmated. And if America and I was very involved in it here in Boston before I left. And then when I went down there, I was very involved in it, you know, going to meetings seven days a week and doing two or three hours of meditation a day. And... And the meditation was extraordinarily healing from, you know, a pretty crazy childhood. And it's not like I ever did anything crazy. I mean, I followed this guy around the country and... And you're all screwed up and just ready to burst open. Went to a lot of conferences that he gave. But for me, I started getting disenchanted when I would go to some of these conferences and I would see the behavior of a lot of the people. And I sort of felt like... I have Guru Maharaj's knowledge. I don't have to think, I know, I've got around, You know, even like the hotels and people would trash the hotels. And if the stuff that we're learning about love isn't actually changing you into a better part of everything, then I don't think you're really doing it right. But anyway, so I had just kind of was on the outs of that when I met Joe. And I think that it was just an easy transition from loving that to loving him. And he just filled that void. Kind and of. he just filled that void and he was funny. And it's like in a lot of relationships, I think after the honeymoon period is over, you start realizing the things about them that you don't like. And one of the things about Joe that was very hard was that he never really grew up. You know, he was one of these people who just knew that at some point he'd luck into something and his ship would come in. Mm. And so he started going after a lot of get rich quick schemes. Do you remember any of the, the specifics? He got involved with some new magazine that was coming out that was selling ads. He bought shares of some, I don't know, some mining operation someplace. <laughs> he was just so gullible about money. And so I was the one who was supporting us. Yeah. Rather than forcing him to be an adult, I just ended up taking over his life. I was even paying his child support. I was I was like paying all the bills and I was pissed at him a lot, but I just never this is where I did not have the skill to be able to say, Wow, you were like completely enabling him mm. to be this way. And the real nail in the coffin though was he had done something that had earned him a couple thousand dollars. Mm. I was very excited that he had money. And then my dad died and I needed to go to the funeral and I ended up using that money and he was so pissed. And he said, you know, I finally earned some money and then, you know, it all just gets wasted. <laughs> wow. And 
I know he didn't mean it that way, but I sure took it that way. And then I was like, you know, well, fuck you, buddy. And, you know, I told him I wanted a divorce. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of a quick and dirty. Um, I'm curious, why do you think you were able to kind of like find that escape velocity and not sort of linger in that sort of codependency or in that just sort of cycle of of anger and you know, all that negative stuff that a lot of people just get stuck in. I, I don't know. I think that, I think that maybe moving away gives you a certain, because you know, you can live on your own. You yeah. know, you can pack up and go, you know, that you can survive in a way that maybe people who live in their own community for a zillion years, um, don't. Yeah. So you got married, sorry, you got divorced in the late eighties. Um, at some point, you moved out to California, you moved to Colorado, you moved back to Massachusetts. Um, I'm curious, sort of in that journey through your life, through your career, was finding an, a romantic partner to share that with, was that a priority for you? So when I moved to California, not long after I moved there, I actually met David. And we were in a relationship for about six years. Mm. And, um, once we broke up and we stayed friends, we stayed friends until he died. Um, and then I don't know, I tried a couple dating services and stuff, but everybody just felt like so much work, Ian, you know, yeah, everything just felt like a lot of work and I just was feeling okay by myself. You know, I just thought that I didn't want someone enough to deal with most of the stuff that I was already finding out about on the first date. Mm. And then I just didn't care anymore. You know, I just, it just was a complete non-issue for me. Yeah. Um, where I just, I was fine and happy and can't even imagine wanting to get into a relationship with someone and doing everything you need to do to, you know, involve yourself with someone's life that way. And, in fact, sometimes I feel sad that I don't, I, I'm so allergic to cats because I'd be perfectly happy to be that woman at the end of the street with 15 cats. <laughs> I wouldn't have any issues with that at all. So, I just want to say that, you know, I, I realize there are, there are negative stereotypes around the idea of being a single adult woman. And I don't mean to harp on that mm -hmm. at all. In fact, I mean, when I look at your life, you know, and the fact that you've lived all over this country, you've traveled all over the world, you've had this remarkable career in medicine, you have hobbies, crafts, you have a wonderful home now with your sister, which is sort of like the hub of our whole family. I mean, and you've been able to do all of that partly because you ha you sort of have this autonomy of self, you know, that you're not attached to another person. So I, I guess I'm kind of in awe of that in a way. Hmm. Thanks. There's a lot of things that can make you feel bad about being on your own on a Saturday night without things to go do. The way I was thinking about it, it's like you go to a mall and you're just sitting around and dozens of people are walking by you and that's... Mm you know, all the bad thoughts and all the whatevers and just, you know, learning how to just let it go by and let it go by that you don't, none of that stuff, the random thoughts in your head, the whatever, that they don't, they're nothing. They're just like clouds in the sky and just not to own them and not to, because it doesn't become real until you 
suddenly say, wow, yeah, that is true. And wow, that makes me really mad. And, you know, all of a sudden you're in this place and it's completely made up that all that stuff is just completely made up. We make it up instead of saying, wow, I got a whole night free. What do I want, what do, I want to do? And like, I used to love to go out to eat with a good book. I never felt for a second that there was anyone in the restaurant looking at me and saying, oh, look at that person. They don't have any friends or they don't have anything, whatever. And it felt kind of nice because I always want to do what I want to do. pretty sure I was nodding along during this whole part of the conversation. Like Rory, I love to do things alone and at my own pace, to go somewhere I've never been before and simply take it in, in silence. When I interviewed my dad for this project, he told me he was surprised that I got married when I did because I'd always been so determined to do my own thing. Self-contained was the word he used. I had always been so self-contained. And it really is true. For years, I resisted the very idea of being in a serious relationship. And whenever I came close to one, I would always find a way to just slink off or let it fizzle without having to even talk about it. Seems like a pretty weird MO now, But I can think of several times as a young man when I just stopped calling, stopped responding, and pretended it never happened. Not because there was someone else, but because there was no one else, and I liked it that way. Somehow, Kelsey stuck. Maybe it was her tenacity. Maybe something in me had changed. Or maybe I had just found someone who I liked being with more than I liked being alone. After we dated for a few years, we actually gave ourselves that chance to be alone again. I moved to Indonesia. She moved to Japan. It was a 15-hour flight to see each other, which we only did a couple of times. And after a year, I came and joined her in Tokyo. I think for both of us, that moment was very important. To know, as Rory said, that we were just fine alone. That we didn't need each other but we wanted each other. A few years after that, much to my father's surprise, we got married. I have a um, sort of a last question, um, sort of bringing it back to this idea of links, you know, and cycles and families, how they play out generation after generation. I'm curious, as you look at, you know, me and my generation, um, sort of, recommitting ourselves to this idea of, you know, having life partners and getting married and sort of setting ourselves on that course. Or I don't know, does, does any part of you shake your head at, you know, the way we're seeking that, that same, same structure in our lives? Or what do you make of it? No, no. First of all, I think that you've all picked extraordinary partners. You all, um, have, uh, your own sense of real personhood. I mean, I think that you guys all are true partners, um, that love is never foolish. And I I think you're all willing to learn from the hard things in life. And I'm 100% 
you know, rooting for you guys that that you'll have these partners for a lifetime. I will say, though, and I think this is something that's uh, important to do and uh, is to look at your parents and realize that, yeah, they did. They did a lot of stuff to fuck you up, but you also get gifts and to focus on the gifts. And I think that the gifts that mom and dad gave me and Mia and Paul and Ellen and I have all talked about this, that the gifts that they gave us, which was an incredible sense of humor, a gift to be introspective and uh, spirituality, that those three things have held me in such good stead throughout my entire life that I actually feel at the end of the day now as I'm looking back when I'm 64, it's like those gifts were worth it, you know, to walk away with those things. Mm. Um, because I got through the rest of it, you know, I learned, I learned how to, you know, wash my clothing and I learned to cope with all the things that life threw at me. Um, but I was able to do that because of the good stuff I got. It's almost like our, like our parents give us wounds and trauma, but if we're lucky, they, they give us the tools and medicine to deal with those things too. Right, right. And to face it and work our way through it. You know, do you think I'm making too much of legacy here? Like, is it, um, Am I making too much of the role models, the examples? Are we our own people more than I'm maybe giving credit in the way I've presented this? Well, maybe. But I think also you you are leaving out in this presentation, you're leaving out all the good role models. Yeah. And I really do, you know, despite exploring the the divorces in my family. Mm -hmm. I do give my parents a lot of credit for given the circumstances they had also giving us the best possible examples I think Mm -hmm. they could. And for them that meant not, you know, vilifying each other. Yeah. It meant dating other people and letting us meet those people and having them in our lives as role models. It meant eventually remarrying. Mm-hmm. I also feel like, like Rory said, mm-hmm. I was given a lot of gifts, a lot of good stuff to work with. Yeah. And I mean, I think, especially hearing Rory's story made me rethink in some ways the way I framed the whole question of marriage and divorce. Um, you know, one way to look at a divorce is as a failure, right? Mm-hmm. It's a marriage that failed. Another way to look at a divorce is somebody took their lives into their own hands and made a change Yeah, in a way that is very difficult and is still bears a certain amount of social stigma Mm-hmm. And it does take some bravery. Mm-hmm. And I'll also say that 
in almost every case, it's the woman who takes that deliberate step. That's another story to tell here is women who are not stuck in marriages that they didn't want to be in. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much of that do you think is just that like marriage is in and of itself like a institution of the patriarchy and therefore more likely to serve the man well than the woman? Yeah. This is something I like think about. I struggle with like why? Like why like why don't we just like date forever? Yeah. Like for for us there's no like legal reason to get married like it doesn't make our taxes cheaper. It, mm-hmm. I don't want your last name. You don't want my last name. I, like I you don't need a green card. I'm not I don't worried need about a green card. Being able to make medical decisions for you. Yeah. Um I think there is something about, I mean, I think the it's nice to that we five to six years ago sat down and made a decision that, that we wanted to like work at being life partners. Mm-hmm. And I think something you said, oh, bless you, Chacha. Something you said earlier about, you know, like being married made you realize that, you know, you had to like take better care of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't think you get that if you don't ever sit down and make the choice to be life partners. Yeah. And I think being ma- like marriage is that. That is what it that is like at its core what it is for me. That's the best justification of my decision I can come up with. <laughs> yeah. I've been, um, while I've been working on this, I found myself thinking about our wedding vows a lot. Um, and? They've, they've held up pretty well. Okay, except? No, there's no but oh, coming. okay, okay, no but. I, what I've been thinking is, you know, there was a lot at the time we got married that I didn't understand and, you know, sort of like grew into maybe. But I actually feel like those last lines of our vows have like only become truer to me and especially in hearing all these stories I find myself thinking of them again and again those lines about how um, even though the future is uncertain although our future is uncertain today we commit to a future together and trust that the rest of our lives will fall into place around that union. We promise to keep that union and to never take it for granted, knowing that love exists Love exists because we make it exist. Because we make it exist. Love lasts love because, lasts we, choose to make because it last. we choose to make it last. I promise to keep making that choice even as we change and grow in its bounds. I promise to keep making that choice even when it is a difficult choice to make. And that idea of <laughs> promising to choose. Let these rings. That's something you can promise. Be a reminder of that promise. You can't promise a feeling. And a reminder of all of the wishes. Because you can't know how you're going to feel. And you can't promise a reality because you don't know what your reality will be. 
There's very little in life that you can promise. Look around this circle and let each one of these faces... The only thing you can promise is what you can control. And the thing that you can control is your own choices. And that is, I think, the best promise that we could have made is to, to just keep making that choice.
Do you have any last questions? You are supposed to have questions. You didn't ask me like any questions. Well, all our, uh, everything that I wanted to ask you about has come up along the way. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm getting kind of tired, so I yeah. feel like I'm just going to start. Yeah, I'm kind of running out of steam, too. Rambling. I'll probably have more thoughts later. Yeah, it's okay. We could talk about it again later. Okay. It's okay. Um, I love you. I love you, too. That's good. Forever is a Long Time was edited by Lacey Roberts. The songs were mixed and co-produced by Alex Shakur and mastered by Nick Zampiello at New Alliance East. You can hear the full album, including songs not featured in the podcast, on Bandcamp and Spotify. Just search for Ian Koss. The artwork is by my wife, Kelsey Tosowski. My collaborators really deserve more than a one-line credit here. I would have abandoned this project many times over if I didn't have some of the most brilliant and creative people I know working with me on it, telling me it could work, and then telling me how to make it work. Truly, you do not want to know how convoluted the entire series would be if Lacey Roberts had not set me straight again and again. I'm grateful to my colleagues at PRX who have supported this project in so many ways. Julie Shapiro, Mark Pagan, Ian Fox, Jason Saldana, Jocelyn Gonzalez, Paloma Orozco, Mayan Plout, Mariel Carricker, and David Catrone. I want to thank my entire family for their openness and understanding. Most times when I would tell someone about this project, they would say either, well, that should make for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner, or, wow, I could never do that with my family. I had my own doubts when I started out, and with each relative I reached out to, I was totally prepared for the whole endeavor to come to an end. Yet, one after another, they said yes, and then shared with me pieces of their lives that I had never heard before, and that helped me understand my own relationship in new ways. That openness to conversation and reflection is one of many, many gifts I have received from my family, and I feel so blessed to be related to them. Finally, thank you to my wife, Kelsey, my partner in life and in this series. Among the many things you have taught me about love and relationships is the fact that it's always better to open up the windows and doors of my mind and let other people in, even, or perhaps especially, when I don't like what's in there. Your probing mind, your compassion, and your perseverance make me a better person, and I can't imagine my life without you.